We just live in it. Yeah, it is Zooty's world. We're just living in it. Uh, Future just announced an album, and then against all odds, he decided to drop that album on Zooty's World Discord that has 30 followers. I mean, it's the new it's new way to release an album is just to put it on a private Discord that you have to enter passwords to get into. And then once you go into it, it's just uh, people trying to shill NFTs. <laughs> it was a very strange experience. I clicked the link. I got into the Discord. It made me verify by typing in a six-digit number. But after three, it started giving me errors. But apparently it worked. And I had access to the Discord now. And all it is <laughs> is one voice channel where someone, the Zooties Music Guy, is streaming presumably the future album over Discord. And then there's about 300 people with their mics off in that channel. You had and it's max users, too, so I can't even see what it is. You had better luck than I did. I clicked on it, and it almost like locked up my entire computer. It was not good. It was a dark <laughs> place. Yeah, they might be mining Bitcoin on my computer right now. Let me check my task manager. I bet it's Future doing it, dude. So it's Future's new album. It's called Zooty's World, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm only at 14% CPU. Well, I trust Zooty's World now. Yeah. It would Who be wouldn't? better, like, I would, I would respect Future if this isn't a hack, and he actually wanted to drop his album on Zooty's World. It's a little late to be doing NFT stuff. I'm surprised it's still up. This has been around for over 45 minutes now. You'd think that it'd be taken down. Maybe it's real, and Future's pivoting away from music towards Zooty's World. Zooty's World is the future of music, and it's all streamed through Discord. Yeah, soon music NFTs are going to be so good, no one will listen to music anymore. They'll just look at the NFTs of it. I wonder if it's even his album. I would assume not, unless it leaked. Like, maybe if it leaked, then maybe they're just playing the leak. But I'm, I would assume it's complete bullshit, right? I don't know. You're the man on the inside, Alex. You got to go for it. I wish I could find out. It's like, it's a... Uh, they sold out all the tickets for the show. It's whoever gets there first. Mm. Probably they're just watching the Bored Ape cartoon or something like that. Yeah, but the fact that we can't get in makes us, we're so tantalized now. We're like, oh, what's going on in there? I'm going to buy a t-shirt and pretend like I was there. The move would be to do the thing that Tim Heidecker did with the Super Bowl. And John Daly also did, where uh, Tim Heidecker preempted Bob Dylan by writing a Bob Dylan song that sounded exactly like him. Oh, yeah. And then John Daly did the Red Hot Chili Peppers one. Oh, yeah, so doing just... that for Future, looking up Future type beat and trying to rap like Future, and then buying a tweet from his account and posting your own album as Future, and he has no idea any of that's going on. No, it's impossible to recreate Future's music, dude. It's impossible to recapture that sound. It's too unique. <laughs> no one does it like No him. one has tried it. Yeah. No one's ever done that before. Yeah, he's very singular. That actually, though, makes me think, while we've got Joel here and we're going to talk about his band's album, uh, Basement Family... It just jogged my memory that uh, Alex Cameron had showed me a thing on YouTube where like a few years ago, uh, someone had posted your song Fall Town saying new JoJo's Bizarre Adventure intro theme. <laughs> I remember that. That was so weird to me. <laughs> It'd be weirder if it was normal to you. If you were just fine with it and expected that to happen. I never watched JoJo's. I mean, is anything about your music like anime-esque? No, I... I don't think so. Yeah, I would Some of the say newer so. stuff, it, I, I have been listening to like city pop and that kind of stuff, using those jazzy chord changes more. But back then, back in the stuff I put out in, what, 2015? Yeah, not and a lot also, of Japanese sounds in there. Did well, you have a JoJo lot of uses, soaring uh, anthemic Western vocals? Songs, it uses like what, like roundabout and stuff by Yes. Like, well, it's a lot of like prog rock and classic rock. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, why, I guess Walk Like an Egyptian is season two. Never mind. I take it all back. Yeah. So they do use Western songs, but like, I don't think they use like Alex's type of songs. Season three. I'm sorry. They go to Egypt in season three. That's why they do that. Sorry. I just don't want to get yelled at. I cannot be yelled at again. If and everyone wants like an to Egyptian, yell at Joel, make he's locked. Now. So good luck. Yeah. You can't find me. What else? Well, before we actually talk about music, we still got to do our weekly update on Crypto Bats. Uh, I believe last week was the first time ever where there was a slight increase I'm sorry, you explain this to me a little bit. Can you give me a full rundown? I know that so, other people know what you're talking about. I just want to hear you say this, because this is going to hurt me more than you think it is. This is Ozzy's boutique NFT that came out in January. And each one is like a shitty looking bat. It's like if if um, Bored Apes were bats and more pixelated even than Bored Do you know Apes. Zubat from Pokemon? Yeah, I know Zubat. What about Golbat? 
It's, it's more basically like Zubat. those. Yeah. yeah, it's closer to Zubat. It's smaller. If it, if it was bigger, it would be Golbat. And they look different? Yeah. So well, here's yeah. the interesting thing. Most of them are just like dumb pieces of shit with different colors. But there's one Ozzy bat that's supposed to look like him, and it's the only one that confers any value. So in like the chart of where the price of these has just plummeted over the last three months, there's one dip upward or spike upward where someone sold the Ozzy bat for like $70,000 and then it dipped right back down because all these fucking pieces of shit are going for like 200 bucks, which is still too much. But oh, that sucks, man. That fucking sucks. I think it's cool. I get like NBA players getting into it, like because they're younger and they're looking for, you know, ways to invest their money. Like Darren Fox did that thing or whatever. I get that. It's just such a fucking bummer with Ozzy, dude. Yeah, he has like, nothing to gain by it. Yeah. There's a video of him explaining it that really sucks where uh-huh. it's scripted and it's like Sharon saying Ozzy really wanted to get into NFTs, but he didn't know which NFT to buy. And then it's like a, a montage of him looking at different NFTs and then yeah, he's he basically came up with his like, own NFT and he, he, he looks very shell-shocked for the whole thing. It yeah, just he sucks. comes across as kind of a prisoner or something where like it's a, this narrative about how he wanted a, um, a red ape or a bored ape, sorry. But uh, he couldn't get one, so he had to make his own. So it's, it's a real, shit. it's a real video. It's not scripted. Yeah. It's not like directed. Oh, it's scripted, but he's no, but he's he the no, it's real. He did it. They made it themselves. Yep. He yeah, it's in it. his house. Oh. Sharon Osbourne is a demon. <laughs> Even going back to like the seventies, her uh, her father was like a corrupt music executive. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and she's uh, like, yeah, I think her father owned. Uh, Ozzy's music or something. So, okay, okay. This is making me feel better. I'm going to run with Sharon Osbourne being an actual demon, and that's why Ozzy married her, to try to do the most metal <laughs> thing he possibly could. Yeah, he could. thought that would be cool, but it backfired. Oh, yeah, her father was known as the Al Capone of pop. That's a good... I've never heard that before. That's a but good that's... thing to be called. Yeah, I'm going to go with Ozzy married an actual demon. That No joke. I'm completely honest right here. That does solve a lot of problems in my brain. <laughs> so what's the price at, Charles? So last week we saw a very peculiar spike up just a little bit, but now we're back to 0.17 ETH. And let's, let's see <laughs> what ETH is going for right now. Oh, God. That's about 450 bucks. Yeah, it's actually been a little worse than that in the past, so... You should have bought low. It depends low. on the price of Ethereum, too. Yeah, Ethereum's actually up a little, I think, which is helping the value. It's hard to even tell what the value of these Like, the currency changes. The floor is moving under you. Dude, that's the future, trying to find of, your balance. future of currency right here. A currency that just fluctuates arbitrarily and is worth like five times more and five times less in the span of two months. Absolute, oh, absolute freedom, dude. You can do whatever you want with it, but you yeah. never know what it's you have. It's going to be so awesome when you hand someone a $20 bill and they say, sorry, sir, this is worth 14 today. <laughs> it I is insanely that. funny to be the kind of guy who complains about inflation and also likes NFTs and crypto. <laughs> yeah, because they're deflationary by design. So once they're all sold, the price will go down, which means no one wants to spend. They only want to hold on to it because it's going to be worth more which is how you crash an economy. That's why you can never have deflation. But they think it's good. It rocks. I, have I think a it's good because you can get crypto bats with it. I have a request. Can you all let me know when crypto bats gets under 100 bones and I'll consider buying one? But here's the, we've, we've thought about that before, but the problem is the gas fees to use ETH are like high enough where you're going to be wasting like, I don't know, 50 bucks or something on the, the fee to make the transaction where you're still getting fucked. Yeah, and to sell it again if you want to sell it. I think I just keep it, though, and I set it as my background on my phone. Yeah, you'll be the first guy to buy an NFT who just genuinely wants to keep it because it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That still sucks. But I'm, I'm the demon thing makes me really happy. That does... Uh, yeah. It ties up a lot of loose ends, and I'm not not being dishonest there. That's, that's helpful. <laughs> Jared Osborne is an actual fucking demoness. So to make a pretty smooth transition here i mean it's been like a hundred episodes since we talked about our own music and did like self-promotional type of episodes which we're going to slightly do here but uh joel you put out this album as basement family eerie ennui yeah and slightly inspired cool, by know? black sabbath if you want to smooth yeah, out that's, that that's transition where i was kind of going bit. with it where like i know geezer butler's definitely one of your top i don't know what do you say top five bassists or something i think he's number one like 
I, you all probably, Charles, you make fun of yourself. This like I play with um, Charles and Solips now, and you make fun of yourself for the strumming pattern that you do, like the one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two thing. Yeah. And like, I don't pick up on that, right? Like, I don't hear it that way. You probably see yourself that way. And so when I listen to Erion Wee, the album, I hear all these little stupid things that's like, that's a geezer run, that's a geezer fill, that's a geezer like move right there in terms of the bass. So he might be number one, man. I think I'd be I think I'd be lying if he wasn't number one. That's why this hurts so bad talking about Ozzy's like <laughs> downfall into just complete insanity. But I guess what's good about a band in general is like when you when you're playing with other people rather than like writing songs as like a solo artist or something you can more aggressively rip off one specific person or band as long as no one else is, you know? And you don't tell them so they don't yeah. know. Yeah. You keep <laughs> it secret. Because they're not thinking of it. And it really doesn't like come through as obviously, you know what I mean? Like, I guess within Basement Family, like Jesse, who plays drums, him, he more than anything is, he's loves like Jimmy Chamberlain, Smashing Pumpkins kind of thing. And you definitely hear some of that in how he plays. But that combined with what you're doing, it doesn't come across as either of those artists specifically because it like it pulls away from each other in certain dude, ways. Dude, dude, Jimmy Chamberlain on drums, Geezer Butler on bass, and fucking uh, Jay Maskus on guitar, and you got Basement Family. Yeah, fucking right, Whoa. dude. That album would rock so much harder than ours does. But yeah, <laughs> I know it smelled crazy in there. It would <laughs> smell so crazy. Um, but no, that you're right. Like, um, I think it does kind of come across as like a very band oriented album and that like there's not like one dominating voice throughout it like uh alex sings everything and he's i think his vocals are fucking awesome and honestly um but like it's not one vibe the whole time which is kind of cool you can tell like it sounds like a bunch of jammed out songs from various influences which is cool i'm glad that it came out that way Because I didn't listen to it for fucking years after it got done because I hate listening to stuff that I've written and recorded. Unlike you two, you guys are good at that and I'm bad at that. I love listening to it, but as long as I can still work on it. If it was something that I recorded tracks for on an actual instrument three years ago and I was listening to it, I know I would be hearing stuff I wanted to change. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I think this is true of probably most artists where most of your listening to a song that you've made happens before you release it and then you almost never listen again. Maybe that's what it was, yeah. I just remember getting the test pressing on vinyl and I, I see it right now like beneath my desk sitting on the floor. That thing has never left the packaging. Like it just <laughs> never, never has gone anywhere. Like I have zero interest in listening to it until it finally like came out where you kind of had to. And I was happily surprised, you know? Um, I'm I'm pretty proud of it. It sounds unique. You know, it sounds cool and sounds unique. Um, yeah, which definitely. is more than I think that I don't know that I could ask for. You know, I'm I'm happy that we worked with the people that we did to where it does kind of sound not like a complete '90s late late '90s early 2000s worship band. Um, it's kind of weirdly classic rock. Like <laughs> when I listen to the structures, yeah. it's like it's weirdly kind of proggy at times. So it's neat. It's fun. I think you're right. Like that's a that's like a high bar to clear in general. Of if something actually sounds like its own thing, then you've done something special. Because it's really hard to have a sound. I think, especially in something like this, that is like fairly like '90s. Like you know, everyone thought of every way to make heavy guitar sounds in the '90s. There's only like so much you can do. And I think what you guys do is with like structure and with like um, dynamics. I guess that kind of make it not purely a 90s thing. Like, I, w- I was trying to think of what bands to compare it to, and I think, like, definitely stuff like Unwound and Slint and Smashing Pumpkins, it is all, like, 90s stuff, but it, it definitely finds its own little niche, you know? I, I swear heavy guitars hit their peak, like, when they're just, like, pushed it to the limit on the song Hello Kitty Cat from Smashing Pumpkins on their B-sides. Yeah. Like, that's like, just all just nasty fucking heavy guitars where they're like, okay, we did it. We can dial it back now. But yeah, uh, you said Unwound. That's the one that actually we're the most scared to talk about because it's very obvious that we were listening to a ton of Leaves Turn Inside You um, when writing the songs and then even through the recording of it um, like four or five years ago. Uh, That's like the most obvious kind of touchstone, which is maybe obvious to us again, like back to what we were saying. And maybe it's obvious to us and not obvious to an immediate listener um, because it is a bit noisier than their later stuff. But just structurally and, and almost like uh 
spiritually, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Unwound, Unwound is all over it for sure. It's not Leafs like turn super... inside you. That always reminds me of DXM when I listen to it. Drinking cough syrup, being sixteen. <laughs> nice. Listening to that first song. Yeah. Oh, the feedback. Isn't it like panned? ten minutes oh, long so or whatever. Good. Yeah. That... It starts with just the feedback, and then it builds up, and it turns into a song. Well, yeah. I gotta you know, go listen to that. You can go pick up some uh, cough syrup and listen to Irian Wee and see how it goes. That's true. I, I mean, you could. You don't yeah, have especially to. if you're listening to this and you're under 18, go pick up some cough syrup. I don't know if you should say. <laughs> don't get uh, poisoning from Tylenol though. Acetaminophen, you don't want to have. You don't want to double up on that. Get one without that in it. It's funny, like you're saying, like feedback panning back and forth. How that used to be such such like a psychedelia thing. It's like whoa, it's trippy and it's made for you to listen to while you're on drugs. It's like, or it's just cool. Like it just also sounds neat. <laughs> like, I don't, it's like a car true. going by. Yeah, I think it's very psychedelic when a car goes by and it starts in the right ear and then it goes to the left <laughs> ear. It's like whoa, dude. If you've never gotten high and listened to a car go by, man, you would never Have think of it that way. And stood in the middle of the street. It's awesome. <laughs> I do remember being very high in college and we were standing on the freeway like next to it in the ditch just listening to cars go by because we thought it sounded cool. So maybe I'm... <laughs> so maybe I guess I'm, there is truth to it. Yeah. I'm completely wrong. came up with that. <laughs> Did you do the same thing? Uh, yeah. Maybe not intentionally. Uh, that's how the Beatles came up with all their crazy shit is they did drugs and that's it. And the rest that's was true. history. When uh, when the Bee Gees did jive talking, their explanation for it was that the beat was inspired by, like, the bottom of a car making a noise while they were driving, <laughs> but it's just a disco song. Didn't James Murphy from LCD Sound System actually make a song that was based on the beat from his car, like when it was open, the door was ajar, and the keys were in it? Sounds like something he would do, but I don't know. Yeah, there's no way that song ended up being good. I know. I remember he got obsessed with the idea of trying to make the turnstiles for the New York trains musical. Like they would play pitches in key with each other, and then he like tried to bring it to the city, and they like turned it down because it's a waste of money. <laughs> That's fair. That's understandable. That would be a good justification for shooting the guys who jumped the turnstile. If it's like trying to play a scale, and someone skips one of the notes, and it ruins the song. Yeah. <laughs> it's even more reason to go after those guys for. Yeah, that'd be really funny. A dollar fifty. NYPD became his biggest supporter for the program. Yeah, we need some musical cops. Musical cops. They should have batons that are like tuning forks. So they hit someone and it's like, bing. Oh, man. I hate my, that my brain went to this as well, but like that sounds like a terrible Rick and Morty episode or something where they go to a planet where there's like musical cops with tuning forks. That sucks. <laughs> it's not fun. I've never seen Rick and Morty. It's not bad. I've only seen the bongs based on it. Yeah. And you thought the show was based on the bongs. Yeah, I thought the show was based on the bong. They made the bongs like, before uh, the show. Like Bob Marley was based on a bong. <laughs> Bob Marley's music. No, it was based off that hat that you can buy with the colors and the dreads coming from it. Oh yeah. He actually uh he was actually half white, believe it or not, and uh he had perfectly straight hair. He just, so he had to wear one of those. He had to wear one of those. Before Bob Marley, everyone in Jamaica only did downstrokes. It was basically like punk. But then he got really high and he was like, what if I did an upstroke? So I didn't know what an upstroke was when I first started playing guitar. And I seriously, man, I don't know if you all did this when you were like learning how to play, you know, any sort of musical instrument. You always thought that you could learn one technique and it would be this creative breakthrough where that'll be like the key that you can apply to everything you know and then you'll just like make amazing music i used to Sweet think picking yeah exactly stuff like that right and i used to think that if i learned how to do really good upstrokes like bob marley or whatever like and i wasn't even sure what it was that i'd be really good at music so then i listened to like a bunch of reggae and i'm like I don't want to make music like this. Like, it's fine, <laughs> but there's no way I'm ever going to play a bunch of just upstrokes in a row. I mean, it can be fine, but I just, I used to think that that was the, the musical breakthrough. Same with the 12 bar blues. I'm like, I'm going to learn this and then that'll be it. It no. is funny to think back on, I guess, like I was learning guitar right before YouTube. So I was using just like ultimateguitar.com and whatever, but that's a good point. Like that there wasn't that many video tutorials yet. So to learn something like upstrokes and downstrokes, you had to just kind of like read about it on like a forum or ultimate guitar or something. Well, and you would find those assholes who are like, this is it. You really need to work on your upstrokes or something. 
like, or you need to like do this. And it's like, this is just a style of music. Like you should probably just learn how to play your favorite songs and then rip them off like crazy. Yeah. And then just like the kind of douchebags who use ultimate guitar too much where like they're all just like Steve Vai, Joe Satriani guys being like these indie rock bands these days don't practice their scales enough and shit. It's like, well, I'm not sure that's true. Is it? I love that culture. I wonder if we're going to lose guys like that as fewer people use forums. I don't think we're ever like going to lose people. Like the, dude, the top the, 25 guitarists. The fact that you think those people only exist on forums says more about you than it says about them. They're they're always going to be there, dude. If you In think, a good way. Yeah, right? you think they're going to just disappear <laughs> when it works positively on me. No, it does not. I'm going to say no. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> that you think they only exist because of forums? Not because of forums, I'm, but that's where I was most exposed to them. I think that you're naive is what I'm trying to say. Alex doesn't have object permanence for uh, <laughs> You can't see them. They're not there. Um, if I block the website on my host file, they don't exist anymore. I mean, I see what you're saying, though, that they congregate there. So that's where like that personality helps to spread, I guess. But where there's always going to be some guy who likes that shit. Just at shows? Yeah. yeah, they're at Guitar Center. You come to Chicago, we'll show you all kinds of shredders. Mainly me and Charles. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm going to go on a pilgrimage to the Bean. My Hajj. Mm. <laughs> then you can, change be- your, you can change your name, right? Can't you like add some cool like suffix to your name? Alex Bean. Yeah. With a hyphen. <laughs> Real quickly with the shredder stuff, one thing I will say, I listened to this album when I was at my parents uh place over easter and i was kind of embarrassed about not embarrassed i shouldn't say embarrassed i was surprised by the amount of guitar solos on it there are a lot of like <laughs> pretty shreddy guitar solos that are sound cool because they're also noisy and alex is a really good uh alex obby the the guitarist for basement family not this guy um but there's a lot of guitar on it so that was a surprise uh, that I, I, I'm happy about, but also very surprised by. Yeah, Alex prefers, like, you know, the Sonic Youth-style non-solo, though, you know, where it's, like, trying to be sort of... Or it's kind of an, a 90s thing in general, too, to do stuff that's sort of rhythmic and atonal rather than running up and down, like, a major scale, you know? And I, I think that's partially on me, too. Like, again, it's not, like, a critique of it or anything. It's just I was surprised by it because, again, I, I haven't listened to it in so long. And I think that's partially on me refusing to play anything else on bass. Like, if I hit a riff that I like, I'm just going to play it until someone yells at me. And it's just like, oh, cool, <laughs> just put a solo in there. And Charles, it reminds me of our favorite Mars Volta quote, where they ask about why are their guitar solos so long? And they're like, that's like asking, why don't you stop in the middle of a story? <laughs> yeah, it's so aggressive. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're not wrong either. Like they're right, but it's just a ridiculous answer. Yeah. It's something you expect to hear from like Joe Satriani rather than Omar. Ooh, I don't know. Joe Satriani would say something worse than that. I think, I don't know. Everything I create is a tone poem and you wouldn't interrupt a poem. Tone poems are an actual thing though. Yeah, but you should also call everything you make a tone poem just to make people mad. No, tone poems are, that's when you're just making noises with your voices uh, rather than uh, words. It's really annoying to listen to. Is it just scat? It's kind of like scat, but not. it's not musical at all. It's just like somebody, uh, they're trying to go beyond like meaning with language. It's really annoying, and they're just making sounds. But a tone poem can be like symphonic music. Is that a tone poem? Yeah. Agree to disagree. What is the other tone poem? Everybody's well, I'm not going to Google it either way, so. Everybody's a critic. Everybody's a poet. Oof. I'm a tone poet. That sucks. I'm pretty sure tone poem. Is there also a symphonic thing? Yeah, like Franz Liszt used to write tone poems. It was just him scatting on stage while the orchestra played nothing. Yeah, he used to do scat. He used to do Hungarian scat. It sounded like shit. (laughs) Hungarian fucking complete shit. Hungarian scat's got to sound better than like English scat, though, right? At least they have weirder sounding sounds. Like it's a little bit fuzzier and more frayed, a little more fried. Someone should get to the bottom of that. Which country has the best scat singing? Oof. Arabic would have to have some cool scat singing. Arabic would. I'm thinking the Bantu languages that actually, the ones that actually do have the clicks. Oh, the click would be good. Yeah. I'm not sure which ones those are, but I know it's like the there's a certain family of the Bantu languages that do that. How about Yiddish scat? No, that's that, that's already happened. <laughs> that was Modest Yahoo and it didn't go well. Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 
Man, that came up in class the other day. Someone was like talking about Modest Yahoo, and it was not good. That seems kind of bleak that kids still know about Modest Yahoo. I think what they were doing is they were like, I had an assignment where like make a playlist for this character in this novel, right? Just for fun. Like, hey, just give me some fucking music. I'm not going to listen to it, but write about music. That's always a lot more fun than writing, I don't know, about themes and motifs, right? So uh, they, I think they just Googled like uplifting songs and then just clicked on Modest Yahoo. That's my guess. Because I'm like, do you know who this is? And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, let's move along. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, I guess that's reassuring that they're not like a fan of his. No, it was no. like blow my mind Modest for a teenager Yahoo. to be really into that today. No, it was so weird when Modest Yahoo came out and the, like the pitch was like, "This is a Jewish rapper." Like they made those already. Yeah, they were called the Beastie Boys, right? Yeah, that was like thirty years ago. We've had them. Yeah, but what if they sucked way worse? <laughs> and also, he used to be on VH1 all the time. He was one of those artists that just uh, he wasn't he was, on VH1, was he? Yeah, he was king without a crown. I remember it was around the time, around the time like Danny California came out, because I had a like our computer wasn't working that summer, so I was just watching VH1 in the morning every day. This is wildly <laughs> specific. Yeah, it was like that and the fray and all that stuff. It was it burned into my brain forever. Ooh, the fray's got some bangers though. Cable car, not a bad song. Not a bad song. That was one of the free songs on iTunes before they blew up. Nice. Did it come on your U2 iPod? That was like red. No, I never got to have one of those. Uh, that came automatically with their album on it. We should you, give away a Basement you, Family iPod to one lucky listener. Ooh, what would it look like? I don't know. You tell me. No, you should decide, not me. Just put the album cover on it. Who cares? It just no. has the poop emoji on it. I would tell someone. I would. I would hire an artist. I would give them one million dollars, and I'd tell them design whatever feedback looks like. And put that on there. They're just gonna end up with the Joy Division album cover. Yeah, it's just it's just unknown pleasure. When we get our asses sued to Kingdom Come. <laughs> it would be sick to release a custom iPod for your music, and it's just a, a regular iPod in a phone case. And on the phone case, it's the Unknown Pleasures album. <laughs> that is really good. Legit though, it would be sick to release your album on an iPod, like, and just just like that's what your merch is. I would buy yeah, it. Like I, I would 100% buy now. that. I would buy that 100%. If someone had an iPod and they're like, yeah, it has our music on it and it was a reasonable price, definitely. I guess you like could probably find some old ass iPods for cheap and, and refurbish them. That's what I'm saying. Like an iPod Nano or something? Sell them yeah. for like 20 bucks a pop with your album on it? Hell yeah. Eerie on Wii. Listen to it on an iPod. We got vinyl, digital, and iPod Nano. iPod Nano. Uh, something I always wanted to do you remember, you remember that Simpsons episode where they have the robot and then Homer's recording something in the bar and he has the hoodie and the blowfish cassette? He says it's cheaper than blank tape. I always wanted to get a bunch of hoodie and the blowfish cassettes and release something only on those. And just assume <laughs> that everyone else knows that joke? Yes. Or do you even care if anyone else knows that I joke? I don't care. Ah. If they look at the tape and it says Hootie and the Blowfish and they're just confused, that's even better. <laughs> I had a buddy in college who would do that. They would go find shitty, cheap, used tapes. Like, you know, like classic stuff like that, sort of. Like from like this grab bin or whatever. And then re like record their, like, their band stuff over the top of it and sell them like that. Yeah, I bet there's a lot of like Amy Grant, Garth Brooks, a lot of stuff like that in the tape bin. Maybe Journey. I think there's got to be something worse than those, right? Maybe Christmas stuff. In the vinyl, it's yeah. always country Christmas classics. Christmas is Christmas has got to be it. Yeah. Yeah, that's and a Bill good Cosby. point. Like the kind of things that sell a lot that you don't think about, like the soundtrack to The Bodyguard or whatever, like that's probably got four million cassettes out there. But that at least has I Will Always Love You on it. But that's what I mean is that everyone bought it then. And then sold off the cassette eventually, you know? So there's probably so many millions of those. I don't, I don't think people sold off their cassettes, Charles. I think they just died with them and left in the attic. There's no way people <laughs> yeah, sold enough. off their cassette collection. They melted in the car. Yeah. They, yeah. Threw, they threw them away if they did anything with it, which is a bit of a shame because cassettes are pretty dope. But Someone could have recorded over that. Do we even have a cassette of our record? I don't think you do. I know you guys did your previous one on one, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Someone That's can a... go check your band camp. No, I'm looking at it right now. No, we don't. That's a bummer. Well, you know, buy our vinyl or don't. Anyway, it's a good album. I was listening to it. 
It reminds me of when uh, Cloud Nothings worked with Steve Albini. Oh, man. It's, it's funny you say that because I was just thinking about how that's the only album of theirs that's good. <laughs> yeah. The one before that is good. It's like... It's too crunchy for me. Yeah. It's, it, it, there's definitely like a clear demarcation between when it was him and when it was a band. Yeah. The, Same with shit, Waves. The early shit is like way too lo-fi where like... The songwriting can be good, but it's just hard to listen to because it's like too shitty. Charles, I yeah. like you're you're being nice about it. You would if you me and you were hanging out right now by ourselves, you would say this shit is unlistenable. Yeah, I try to be more reasonable. You know, if you just say things off the top of your head, I'm gonna be mean about everything. <laughs> but I don't. There's one in between. I think like they had one that sounded. I'm yeah, thinking, they had a first album that sounded like really really shitty. I'm and thinking about the one, one with, in between that was like a little better. I'm thinking yeah. of the one with Cool Kid on it. Like that was like their big hit, and it's just, whoo. Yeah, that was turning on. I was thinking of uh, the self-titled 2011. Oh, and you, and then this, the one you're talking about with Albini is uh, Attack on Memory. Attack on 2012. Memory. That's a great yeah, album. Yeah. I like that album a lot. It's very good. Yeah, I I think that the Albini influence is, um, like I like Albini's drums in particular. Um, I disagree with his like. You know, I'm going to record a band and I want this recording to sound exactly like they do live. And that's the record. I don't ascribe to that. Like, I like doing more overdubs and more fun, cool stuff, you know, just production and things like that. But um, I think that, like, we always strive to get some Albini in the DNA a little bit. Like, um, I think, yeah, like Alex, more so than you, subscribes yeah. to that more. Of like that's why this album ended up being kind of Albini esque. Of like, you guys did it not only like live in the studio, but I think you had all the was it all the amps in the room with the drums, or was it just the guitar no. amp was in there? No, they were all set. Yeah, that's what's oh, funny. They were all actually, ISO'd? I think uh, no, 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 no. I, the the bass was ISO'd. Okay, uh, yeah. vocals were obviously done separately, but the the guitars were in the same room. Except what ended up happening is the room guitar mics picked up basically all of it. Because Alex, like, he cranks up his amps very loud. Charles, you were in a band with him. You know what it's like. And yeah. in a good way, like, because his, his rig really does run way better when it's hot, right? Um, classic tube amp argument thing. Like, it really does. Like, it just starts to break apart and do crazier shit when you really crank it. And so the room mics just pick that up pretty well. So, like... There are going to be select moments where there are close mics kind of in the mix, but a lot of the louder stuff is mostly room mics, which I think gives it kind of a cool, like, not lo-fi, but like washed out feeling to it a little bit. Yeah. And what's funny is that that's also like an Albini technique. Yeah. Uh, and also like, uh, this hasn't been said too much, but this band originally started a little bit more shoegazy than it is now on this record. So I think that there's like still a little bit of that in the the DNA as well, like some My Bloody yeah, Valentine definitely. influence and stuff like that. I guess something just thinking of like Alex's guitar tone a little. You mentioned like just cranking a tube amp, but also he uses like the solid state, uh, the JC120, yeah, and combines that with his Marshall, which I, I always forget what the Marshall is because it's just missing. It's he just a calls very, it Marsha because it's missing the two L's. On it's the, a very the rare logo. cab that just has one twelve. Um, which is really weird. Like it's a very strange model, and that thing is kind of weird. It's it's kind of simultaneously like our muse and the bane of our existence. Like because it gets broken all the fucking time, but it also sounds amazing and gets these crazy feedback squelches that are like really really fucking fun. Like when you hear them on the album, it's hard not to be happy about getting that sound. Like just this very, very bizarre squelch that I, I think is hard to recreate. So I love that amp, even though it's, man, I personally have driven that amp to like so many guitar stores to get it fucking fixed. Um, That's the one thing I miss about having real amps because I do everything with uh, VSTs now. So I can change the amp and everything after I've already recorded the track, but you can't get feedback. I miss the feedback. I miss opening something with a big squelch. Yeah. I still, I, I can sympathize with that, like doing most things in the box. Um, but man, there's just something, maybe especially with writing it or, or coming up with stuff, like I, I've got to feel a little bit of that physical presence. And that's that's more on me being like a boneheaded dumbass than 
there being a right or correct way. Especially Charles. Yeah, I wish like, I had a place to do that. I wish I had like a barn where I could just crank an amp up and I'm in a in an apartment. And Charles, like me and Charles, we are at the same studio where Basement Family came up with all these songs. It to me, it sounds like it sounds like it was written in a practice space by a bunch of dudes who are just piecing things together. Like it's not like this big statement or anything. It sounds like sounds like a lot of practice, honestly, which is uh Yeah. It sounds like seriously three dudes making a fucking album from music that they like, which I'm very happy about, you know. Doesn't sound like a concept album. It doesn't sound like anything else. It sounds like what it is, which I love that. Because having a space that you can go and blast your amps and be fucking loud is a blessing that I only have become very grateful of. Yeah, you can definitely imagine guys in a space hearing it. And I think I think also Jesse Working completely in the box, it would be really, really hard. Obviously, like nearly impossible with an album like this because Jesse's a pretty hard hitter. But Jesse also understands dynamics really well. And it changed my bass playing on this because I never did this before, which is the most fucking dumbass thing ever. Jesse will always move to a different drum or a different cymbal when Alex's vocals start. And like, I think that's kind of an underrated gift that I don't really pay attention to. In, in recording yeah, or even totally. when I'm making stuff. Like, it's just a subtle little difference. And it's not like it necessarily he's getting quieter all the time, but he's just opening up a different space for the vocals to come up there. And so I kind of started following him with that too, where I would change up the bass line a little bit or like mute it a little bit or turn off, turn on or off a pedal or something. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't. Symbols are hard. And he's really good with them. We did have to, early on when I first started playing with Jesse, I was a total dickhead. And I'm like, you can only have two. I think he's up to three or four because he's good. But I just, I don't like too many symbols personally. Um, but again, you don't really tell a guy like Jesse, like as good as he is, what to do. Because he's probably, probably the most talented musician I regularly play with, I would say. That's not too crazy to say, right, Charles? Yeah, he's definitely... Just like super tasteful, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just anything you throw at him, it's like, oh, you've you've got this. Like even with um, you know, talk about using a a, a riff from like Black Sabbath and no one recognizes it. He'll straight up tell me like sometimes like, oh, that's just the drum riff from Bodies, but just slowed down or something. But it doesn't sound like it at all. Um, just that's yeah, how he, he interprets it. He did it. well to rip off Jimmy Chamberlain because he's one of the more tasteful rock drummers ever, probably. So yeah, he knows how to like Jimmy Chamberlain knows how to make huge moments huge and very catchy moments catchy, uh, and I think that Jesse definitely, you know, emulates that to a respectable degree without being a complete clone or ripoff. And I think he'd be okay with me saying that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, because he likes him that much. So yeah, we're all Jimmy Chamberlain fans here. God, he's so good. He's awesome. So good. Just hard to, and it requires a lot of talent to stay in that band. Yeah, well, to be able kind to of deal stay with Billy Corgan, <laughs> to yeah, kind of a come and go, but more than anyone else. Yeah, true. It was funny when Billy Corgan released a solo album with Jimmy Chamberlain on every track. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what is the difference here? I think uh, Cedric Omar, or, or sorry, Cedric. Uh, Pixlers of Allah. They got their hair. They got their hair tangled in a rat king. That's mean. <laughs> That's mean. Uh, I'm sorry. I love them. Uh, they. Omar released a solo album and Cedric sang on like four of the tracks and John Frusciante also played guitar on it. And it's like, it's wait, honestly, what are we doing similar. It's like a love-hate thing where it's like they spent too much time together and they start getting sick of it, but then also they don't work as well with anyone but each other. So it's like, well, I want to go do my own thing, but also I need you because you can do this aspect better than me, you know? I, well, not even better than me. I think they look at it as like, because you can do this thing that I want. And they, I think that's like mm -hmm. true respect. Like, well, you just do this thing really well that I really see my music needing. Um, and that's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of beautiful. Like, well, I'm not going to get anybody else to sing on this. I'll just get my buddy from my other band to sing on most of this album because that's what I want. That's kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. I think, I don't know, if you spend that much time on the road with anyone, you'll start to get like testy about certain things because it's just tough to always be around someone 24 7 but it's like at the end of the day especially in something like chamberlain and billy corgan is just like there's a reason why they keep going back into each other's orbit over time and they have enough money now where they can probably figure it out where they probably if they don't like each other which i don't know 
then they can spend time apart, you know, and that's not a big deal. But. Yeah, I, d- I did listen to Billy Corgan talk about this within the last few years. And it was sort of what I'm trying to get at here, where he's like, we're so far beyond having like a normal relationship or whatever, where it's just like they've done it for so long that they're just like, it's kind of like something. Wait, they're fucking? Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's just like something that's like, I don't know, hard to describe other than they just have a weird professional and personal relationship that is... It it leads them back toward working together despite having occasional problems with each other. I don't know. Well, I mean, like having a drummer who can just, you know, you throw down a riff and 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 they just immediately change it or go off. And I guess I'm saying this especially as a bassist, like working off of rhythm. Like head retention, like one of the longer songs that I'm super, super proud of. Like that I put a heart next to that when I listen to it. That track is just like I had that riff and then Jesse's drum beat was there and Alex Alex's vocals definitely like led the way. But then like most of half the song is like Jesse just started going nuts and so me and Alex just started going nuts and it started out as a stupid fucking jam that we constructed into a song. Point being it was the drums that led the way on that track. And I I, I could say that about a lot of songs on this like that Jesse's drums sort of ended up being like the the light that we followed. Uh, just based on where he was taking the rhythm, which is a weird way to write an album, but that's like, a, I guess, like a kind of a jammier way to write it. Like, we'll just get together and jam it out. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it definitely shines through. And Head Retention achieves like the cool structural thing where you go on this long tangent and it becomes kind of drony for a while. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, you end up back on the first riff out of nowhere. And it's like, God. oh, sick. That's great, you know? Well, that's also like rewarding people who made it all the way through just a, a nightmare of feedback for yeah <laughs> for two or three minutes. Like, hey, we'll go back to the hook, whatever. But that's uh, just like one of the most classic like rock structures to me. Like this is like an exaggeration, but you think about like Pink Floyd's Echoes. Yeah. Where it just fucks around for like 15 minutes and then they hit you with like the ho- vocal hook and everything at the end again. Yeah, that's true. I guess the my bass tone on this is really good. On head retention? Yeah. Ooh, I kind of wish I dialed back on my overdrive a little bit because it is aggressive on that song, but it's unique. So I'm happy about that. Like it's uh, a bit too close to Charles. What's that song? The Curtis Mayfield song we always listen to. If there's hell below. Yeah. Yeah. Like that his, one's uh, first self-titled album. That one's real aggressive. And I think I went almost too close to that. I wish I would have dialed it back, but it's unique and it's cool. So I'm glad you like it. Oh yeah. It does kind of, it's got a soul feel to it, kind of. And that that's another thing. I think that one thing, Charles, I know we talked about like Slint and Unwound and stuff like beyond, outside of this podcast, but um, Fugazi, I think, especially like The Argument, is a groovier record than you would think, you know, when you think about Fugazi. And I think Joe Lally has like a lot of weird kind of more rhythmically interesting groovy bass lines that made it into this. Yeah, I don't know, totally. like if you compare this to earlier Basement Family stuff, it's not all just like chords and feedback or whatever. So Yeah, and I think, well, something that we've talked about, like you and I in general, is like when you're playing in a three-piece like that, as the bass, you have sort of this space to also be kind of the rhythm guitar if you want to be. So like you can get away with more distorted tones because you're just kind of filling out things a little more than in like a four-piece. And that's the Lou Barlow thing. From yeah, Dinosaur yeah. Jr., 100%. Um, and I guess you could say Joy Division as well with Peter Hook, the way he plays. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, definitely. Like you do, it does allow you to be a little bit more of a boneheaded asshole and just be loud and dumb and and not creative. <laughs> yeah, bass power chords. Yeah. Some of that New Order stuff, it's like, get the fuck back down the neck. <laughs> what are you doing? You're a bass player. Yeah, I mean that's it's like in the last two strings, way up in the octaves. Yeah, get, get get back down there. Yeah, but I mean, man, he was also like Peter Hook is is pretty high up there. Even though I'm not the biggest like Joy Division or New Order fan in the world, he's definitely a a bigger influence because he was another guy who could play chords or play lead or you know not always be the stereotypical bassist. Yeah, and also he is the best. Well, now this is accidentally a pun, but he is like the best hook writer in those bands. Probably so. Yeah. Once he had a good hook, it's like you're not going to stop him from playing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and weirdly enough, 
uh, Green Wave, that was me trying to play a Thundercat bass line and failing. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, that's a great song on on your album. It's uh, it's from um, Never Gonna Catch Me, that Kendrick song. There's a bass breakdown in that. No, it's from one of the songs that him and Flying Lotus did together. I can't remember which one, but there's a Thundercat bass line breakdown, right, that... I was kind of trying to figure out and it just became a different riff and then Alex plays it and I don't play it the whole time now. So like it was a botched Thundercat cover that became a guitar line. Nice. And now it's like a slow, almost like preoccupation sounding uh, kind of song. Yeah, maybe that's another comparison because you guys opened for preoccupations before. Uh, yeah. There's some overlap there. Yeah. Um, we're, we're kind of buddies with them. Like we know them and keep in contact with them. So uh, it's kind of weird because we listen to the shit out of their music. you know. <laughs> so it's always fun being like, oh man, they're one of the best bands out there. Uh, and they're also your friends sort of. Um, but yeah, they like, they are, I don't know, arguably one of the better post-punk bands of the last like five or 10 years. Right. Oh yeah, totally. Especially their first album is so good, dude. I mean, all Man, of them have I think been their good. second one is really good. And I would put that up there with bigger yeah. influences on this album too. Just with like being okay with space, you know, is, is huge. Like Alex, I think is, I think his vocals are really good, especially in Mouthwaterer. Um, like he went into a very vulnerable, cool, dark place with those vocals, like very close mic, do you know? Yeah. And yeah. Very breathy and very creepy, but like intimate. And I feel like that's a similar space to what preoccupations can do where it's just like, you know, one instrument and vocals or minimalist stuff going on and then vocals on top of that. Yeah. It's such an important lesson to learn, especially doing like a heavier band that you just need dynamics. And the more that you have dynamics, the better and more memorable song, like the better and more memorable all your songs will be, you know? Yeah. And, and trying to, to vary that up throughout either a tra track list or a set list or an album or whatever, you know, making sure that it has these peaks and valleys of dying like dynamics. Yeah. There's nothing more boring than a band that lacks that, even if they're good of not, well, this is like kind of come across as mean, but it's like when we saw wind hand, it's like, I think that band's really oh, good. Dude, yeah. hundred percent. Watching them play for an hour and a half. It's like, everything's the same tempo and the same volume. And there's like so few yeah. dynamic changes that it all starts to blur together. And it sucks. Cause it's like this band rules, but like do something different, please. Yeah. Well, and I mean, also they're, they suffer from also, I love Winhand, but they do suffer from writing every song exactly the same. So yeah, but I agree with you. I remember me and you like left actually like not halfway through, but you know, we knew that they were going to be wrapping up shortly and we're like, eh, we've seen enough. Like we get it. Yeah, let's skip the last one or two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, that's yeah. enough. Yeah. I, I guess like, uh, you kind of said this in passing earlier, but you guys recorded this, what, like almost five years ago now, just because of circumstance kind of pushing it back a bunch. So I don't know how, I'm sure it feels very distant from you, right? Like, yeah, it was recorded in 2018. And then just because we move slow as a band, you know, as a three piece with, you know, all of us working full time. Um, and then uh, the studio being a little bit busy sometimes, which is fine. It's just harder for us to book time there every once in a while. Um, and then to be honest, not really being sure what we wanted to do with it for a minute. Like we weren't sure. Uh, and then obviously COVID, which that shut down everything. But yeah, it, it is distant, which actually I kind of like that. Like it makes that's me kinda, more. Go ahead. Sorry. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking is that the fact that you finally listened to it again means that it's so distant that you can like appreciate it objectively rather than feeling tied to it anymore. I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I can I can um, look at it as as it is what it is. And you guys were kind of referring to this a little bit before, where you can't fuck with it. You definitely can't fuck with it because we recorded it so long ago, <laughs> you know, like there's no yeah. way we're going back to these mixes now. And that's kind of cool. Cause it's like, all right, that's it. Then let's, let's move on. Let's go forward. So it's like a re-release. 
It kind of feels like that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, 10th anniversary. And to be uh, no, to be honest, to me it feels like a remaster cuz I barely even heard the mixed versions of the songs. So now I'm hearing like the final mastered versions of them. So to me it's like hearing, you know, when you hear a remastered version of one of your favorite albums, you're like, "Oh, this fixes everything about it. There's actually bass in it now." Or there's actually I can actually hear the vocals or there's uh, some shimmery, trebly parts to it. That's I I'm kind of rewarded in that and lucky. Um, yeah. So thank. Actually, there's another thing we started getting at this before we started recording, but it was mastered by Todd Rittman from Dead Rider. Yeah. Uh, like a drag city band, who's like you know another like Chicago native band, and he definitely did a great job. Like yeah, and there his band's awesome too, and I think that's why Alex went to him. Is like okay, well if he knows his sound, he'll he'll kind of get our sound, and I think they hung out for a, a minute too and just talked about what they were going for, and he clearly got it, and. Um, no shade thrown towards Doug at all, who who mixed in, um, recorded everything because he did a great job too. But I think the mastered versions of it, I'm like, oh, cool, these are the songs. This works now. So, yeah, he did an awesome job. I'm trying to think of another thought. Now we've we've talked about this. <laughs> I'm trying like, to think of another thought. Oh, just do the rating then. I'm putting my fingers on my temples. Oh yeah, you're right. We should rate it. Yeah. yeah. So. We got to bring out. Well, I want to say I want to say this. I'm I'm very proud of it, but I know the rating is true and objective and supreme. Yeah. So we're gonna have to wheel out our AI that knows the perfect, exact, objective score of everything, and see what this deserves. Like, what do you think it deserves, Joel? Oh God, do I have to do this? Really? Fuck. Yeah, I think so. We need some baseline going into it to to find out. All right. Right now, I think I would give it a six out of ten because I've heard six out of ten tracks. <laughs> That's how I rate things. I haven't heard. I haven't had a chance to hear four of the ten tracks. So every album's a ten out of ten once you make it through. Yeah, if I've heard all of it, it's a ten out of ten. I'm like one of those old people who gets an Amazon request, like an email request to leave a review, and they say, "I don't know. I bought this for my cousin. How am I supposed to review?" And they leave one star. <laughs> I'll say. A four out of ten, four point two out of ten, because uh, too much feedback, um, too quote unquote weird question mark, um, and not enough bass solos. I think you're the first person to preemptively do that with this gimmick of like the odds of you getting a low score are pretty high, right? So you've just preempted that by coming up with all the reasons we usually say after we get the low score. Yeah, if it gets a 10, you're going to look like a jackass and a dickhead. All right, let's find out. I'm willing to if risk it. If your album gets a 10, you're going to look so fucking bad. <laughs> oh, no. It got a 0. 0.5. <laughs> oh. So, actually, you were way too generous. We need to come up with more problems here. Okay, well, um, I don't really... I think that it, clearly the issue is there's not enough storytelling. You know, you yeah, listen to an say, album... Uh, it's hard to hear what he's saying sometimes. And even though they're mixed, his vocals are mixed way higher. Wow, this is really low. This sucks ass. I was hoping higher than what I said. Um, uh, I think that his vocals are mixed higher than we we have done in the past. But he just, you know, and this is partially on me too. We just didn't tell a good story, you know. Uh, I have yep. vocals on this album too, and we should have just told more of a narrative. That's what people want. They want narratives. You could have you even just rap. done some of the songs a cappella. I think there's too too many too many instruments. You know, one bass, one guitar, one drum drummer. That's that's too much. You know, you gotta lay off that. Um, one shitty synthesizer and one alt right guy singing love songs over the top of it. That's what people want. And you could tell that this is from 2018 because there's nothing about "Let's Go Brandon" on there. Yeah, we could have used more. That's true. Yeah. More these, of these popular motifs that cause a song to go viral on YouTube are just completely absent. Mm -hmm. I think this should have been a meditation on solitude in the face of the pandemic in lockdown. Well, there's none of, this, none of the songs uh, really address the pandemic, even though it was recorded before it. And I think that's an issue with it, too. That's I think right. I, I think we can talk at, like basically it's mostly a, a song storytelling issue with this album. You should have done a concept album about the Spanish flu. Yeah, and how we see that coming. Yeah, then when you look back at it, it's like, wow. I think it's also prescient. It's it's safe to say that because we recorded this in 2018, um, clearly we're Trump supporters, right? Yeah, if you're not railing against him, then you must support him. 
that's that's all there is to it. Yeah. I just um, had a bleak thought that seemed funny to me, but then I realized this has probably happened countless times. But uh, with like talking about the pandemic uh, as like a subject for music, you know, and like it's like what a PR person would say of just like, oh, you need to tell a story about the, your pandemic journey to like market this album. And like, you know, usually that's like something you'll get after the album or whatever, and they're trying to sell it. But it's really funny for a band to consult a PR person before you've written a single song and be like, what's our story? Tell me the story. But I guarantee some like major label pop act, like that happens all the time. So, well, absolutely. I mean, the one that's most obvious with it is again, Mars Volta. Like remember how cool their stories about their albums were? It was like, oh, you know, we had a friend in our band who tragically passed away and this is our idea of what he might have been going through when he was in a coma. And it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, yeah, all right, I'll listen to that. And then the other one is like, oh, well, this is what our friend, a diary that he found in a taxi cab. And then he tried to figure it out. And then he kind of, you know, lost his shit there Yeah, that's for a, a good point. Bit. There's like a um, degradation but on then, each subsequent album. And that one's like, okay, like that sounds like you're going for the first one, which seemed legit and cool. But yeah. all right, whatever. And then the third one was like, Nothing. They're just like, we're just not doing that this time. And the fourth one was like, we got this creepy Ouija board and we were, it was doing creepy things, man. And that was like the press yeah. release. And everyone's like, all right, so you've just been bullshitting us for like 10 years now. Yeah. <laughs> that The fourth Mars Volta album, that's exactly right. Of Bedlam and Goliath. That, like, yeah. The, uh, the vinyl, it comes with like a 10 inch uh, single. Like that, that's like separate from the album. And it's like a Ouija. Yeah. Like what do you call the thing you hold in the Ouija board? It's shaped like that. Yeah. It's like so fucking on the nose, man. Well, okay. So they maybe that started killing their band members. It worked so yeah. well the first time. Everyone who was, <laughs> Every single album. Every sound, uh, sound manipulator. I think that's what the guy was. Yeah. Jeremy Ward. Jeremy Ward. Yeah. yeah. Every replacement. They should have just killed him like Spinal Tap with the drummers. <laughs> I don't and think they Spinal doing Tap albums that are just murder mysteries. I don't think Spinal Tap killed their drummers. That's not how I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't remember them. One I don't remember them murdering their drummers, Alex. Well, you got to read between the lines. Ah, I see. So when the guy spontaneously combusts, they killed him. They made him eat a bunch of TNT. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, I think they, another it was problem. Like in the green room, they're like, "Oh, we don't have any snacks in here. We just have TNT to eat." I think these another car- problem red carrots that are on fire. Another problem with this uh, album, Charles, is we didn't market it well enough in that we didn't send out free or like our own set of like Magic the Gathering cards or some sort of game board like from Bedlam and the Goliath. It's it wasn't gamey enough, you know. Nowadays, people want their media to also be uh, gamified. They want to be able to to use it in multiple ways. We didn't actually. I thought of one more thing that's ultimately the most damning thing is that you didn't stream the album on Zooty's World Discord. Oh, you're right. Well, I can change that. I can stream it on, like, I don't know, the E1 Discord or some shit. No, I think there's still time. Let's reach out to Zooty and see you're if we right. can get it on Zooty's World Discord sometime right. in the next month. You know, Alex, you're you're th- our you're our man on the inside. I think if you go into the Zooty's World Discord, into that channel where they're all watching it, and don't mute your mic, you could play your own album into it. That's and people really... will probably find you and mute you within a minute, maybe. But you're still getting valuable listening hours. Listening hours—that's what we need. That's what I get paid by—is listening yeah. hours. And that's what's going to cause your score to go up. It's really tempting. It's really tempting to do that, but I'm way too lazy to do that. Once you get a thousand listening hours on Spotify, you can monetize. Oh, it's like YouTube. I'm not into that shit, though. I'm in it Before for Before that, you don't get paid anything. This is I'm the into difference. losing money on making music. This is the difference between me and you all. I'm in it for the love of the game. I'm just trying to be on Eurovision. They should put America in Eurovision. If Israel is in Eurovision, like on what grounds? Like it's uh, most of the people there came from Europe. Eurovision's going to become like NATO. ties to Europe. Where like expansion becomes a political issue. Yeah, we get, that's what we should be worried about. Israel means he who wrestles with God, though. That's why they let them in. It's a pretty cool name. That's a good metal uh, album or band. Israel? It's way better you want to name your metal band Israel? No, he who wrestles with God. Oh. What if you named your metal band Israel? I bet someone's done it. That's uh, about as cool as Genesis or Exodus. Yeah. No See, one ever yeah, went for it's... Leviticus. Oh, I think they did. I think they did. There's definitely a band called Gaza. All right. Well, thanks for being here. We wasted our time talking about a 0.5 caliber album. Yeah. But... Well, I'm sorry, y'all. I tried my fucking hardest for sure. 
Go check out this cringe basement family. Yeah. Yuri on Wii. Yeah, new cringe just dropped. New cringe. New cringe. Now there's an album title. You should try to get this on libs of TikTok. Ooh.